All right. Well, this is David Finkel, and I want to welcome everybody here to today's roundtable here. And today is a chance to have a kind of a guided discussion with one of our most important Maui advisors and guest speakers here today, Rob Mayberry. And Rob and his wife, Patrice, have they've done some pretty remarkable things in their life, but we're going to focus in on the business side of that. Um, and so I want to introduce Rob. Gosh, I first met you and Patrice back in 2000, I want to say 2009, at the very first Wealth Summit that the two of you participated in. And you know, since that time, Rob, you you built a number of different companies. You sold one of them in the med- medical education field you had, that you had built up over a number of years. You and Patrice have started, and, and, and last count was, was it was six or was it seven level three businesses that you guys have built, and is it now the same number? Or have you increased or decreased that? <laughs> no, no. We retired retired from uh, developing new businesses, so we're just finishing out the ones that we have. And so, yeah, it's something like six, uh, six or seven now. You know, you know, it's got to be kind of a fun place in your business life when you can say oh, it's around six or seven. It's like that fuzziness. That I imagine that if someone has, you know, you know, nineteen children or eight children, it's you know, yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we but, have seven uh, or eight kids too, something like that. <laughs> well, you're all in for a treat here. Rob and his wife Patrice are two of just the nicest people, most down to earth. But Rob, just real quickly here, your background—if I were to look at it—it it, it, it started off way back in the in the world of of working with US West, US Cellular, on in terms of mergers and acquisitions, helping them scale. I mean, you, you did this as an employee there, as one of their executives, going from essentially a startup to somewhere in the neighborhood of 3 or $4 billion. I know that they did that scaling up in about about a five- or six-year period. Isn't that correct? Yeah, actually, uh, they did it uh, even more rapidly than that. Uh, it took about two, two-and-a-half years uh, to go from zero to about $4 billion. And uh, I was uh, on the mergers and acquisitions uh, team at that time, so it was uh, it was quite a ride. <laughs> and so the frame for today, I want everyone to know that the frame for today is for everyone to just we want to share concrete experiences of what it's like at level three. What were some of the lessons that that were learned along the way? What were some of the lessons that were learned post level three? Um, and the idea is that so many of us have this idea that we're going to race to level three, as if we're going to run, 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 and then at the, as soon as we hit that finish line, we're going to stop because we don't really think what comes on the other side of that. So I've been calling in some favors with different Maui advisors and friends of mine who have, who have built level three businesses that either still own them like Rob and Patrice do as level three companies or who have sold them um, and, and taken an exit that way. And we're going to talk about what that's been like for them, and try to give you guys a concrete picture of different different experiences of what Level 3 might look like. There is no right one for you. Some of you are going to find the things about Rob's life. You think, wow, I really want to borrow that. I, I love that aspect of, of him. Others might not fit, but now you'll have a better, more concrete picture of that. And so, Rob, I want to start us off here by just asking, give us a – I mean, I know your, your businesses now are in the medical education field, but give everybody here a – you know, the two-minute recap of what your current businesses do so we can get a sense for what types of businesses you currently still own. Yeah, presently the uh, the primary business that we do is uh, to hold seminars for physicians to get their continuing medical education credit. 
one of our organizations is an accredited institution, and so when the docs uh, come to our meetings, they pay a registration fee. Uh, we get an excess of docs a, docs a year that come to our programs, and they're held all over the world. We have uh, in excess of 90 programs now that are held in the U.S., uh, the Caribbean, Canada, and Europe, and soon to be Asia. Uh, so we hold them all over the world, and the docs come and and get uh, an excellent uh, educational experience. Uh, we have 200-plus faculty members that are from leading medical schools like Mayo, Johns Hopkins, uh, Harvard, and others. And those folks teach at our programs. Uh, the physicians come and have an excellent uh, experience. They get their CME credit, and uh, they generally bring their families and have a great time. Uh, getting some R&R while they're at our CME event. So uh, in a nutshell, that's how it works. <laughs> okay. So now I'm going to take you back a little bit. I remember we were having a lunchtime conversation at your first Well Summit event. It was you, Patrice, and I, and several other people, but we were having a conversation at lunch at one of the roundtables that we do there at, at lunchtime there. And and one of the things, this is probably on day three or four, I still remember the conversation, and, and it was, at the time, the two of you had built with your third partner, I mean, your, your medical education companies, into a wonderful grouping of businesses. They were incredibly successful back then. Yet one thing became pretty apparent was at the time, you kind of got into this habit of running the business in such a way that it was at the center and that you scheduled life and the rest of it around the business. And I remember having this conversation on the theme of, gosh, you've earned the ability, you've built the business well enough that you could make the switch to break that habit and start to build your business around your life, not your life around the business. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Because you made some pretty fast changes over the next 12, 24 months. I remember that conversation very, very well, David. And uh, that was kind of the uh, light bulb going on uh, moment for me. And, uh, you know, I think when you build businesses, uh, especially if you're a serial entrepreneur like uh, I have been, you just get into that mode of um, being sure that everything is getting built as quickly as it can get built and spending a lot of your own time uh, investing into that process. And uh, you tend to forget the reason you wanted to build that in the first place, which was to have a life. Uh, to hire other people to do the things that need to be done and that can be trusted to do them. And uh, so that was that was my reminder moment that, uh, you know, it was time to uh, put others in place to do the things that uh, I had been doing so that I could remove uh, myself much further from the business and indeed uh, – that has been done over a period of time and even more so today than ever. Um, when I sold my first business, uh, unfortunately, I didn't know David yet and uh, hadn't implemented these level three business concepts. And so I was so involved in the business that I just wanted out so badly because it was so much work. And when you're trying to sell a business, you're spending a lot of your time selling the business instead of working on the business. And yet uh, prospective buyers expect your uh, profit and revenue to continue going up. 
and it becomes a very, very difficult process that uh, when it takes a couple of years and it can take a toll on one's life. And what I had done wrong was to not build that level three business uh, because so much was dependent upon myself. And so that's that's probably one of the largest lessons that uh, that I've learned through the whole thing. And on top of everything else is if you're doing all the work yourself, um, then when somebody comes along and wants to buy your business, they want you with the business. And therefore, you have no escape plan anyway, which is what you were hoping for. So your your goal is to build a business that can go on without you and that can be sold uh, without you so you can move on to the next thing. You know, Rob, it's interesting. I'm going to follow up on a couple of things you said, but one I'm going to tease you a little bit about. You really connected back to the time you had your first medical education company and how much it revolved around you because rather than calling it your exit strategy, you called it your escape plan, and I was smiling when I heard you just say that a moment ago. <laughs> <laughs> it did become an escape plan. It did. Oh, I felt that before at different times. So the, the fault I want to have here is that a lot of times we, we as business owners, as we have this rapid growth, we we find ourselves in a place that we think no one else – I mean, it, it, it's almost like these magic words. If you want something done right, do it yourself, which are probably the most expensive words you could ever say. Um, and, and I noticed for business owners, they get to a point where we would call it an advanced stage level two. They, they've just started to make the shift out of being an owner-reliant company. They still haven't hit level three. They're in that rapid growth move, mode, and they start to pull back because they get so wrapped into the difficulty of letting go of pieces of the business to talented other people with good systems and controls in place. So I just want to ask you about that because you and Patrice have now done a great job about doing this, about – I mean, you couldn't have the companies that you have without the talent that you have, without the systems and controls that give your talent structure within which to do great things. Talk a little bit about that. Not the, not the nuts and bolts of doing it. I, I think that you know, most of the clients that come through us and are, gonna, are listening to you now, they've gotten the nuts and bolts. But it's about the mental block sometimes for business owners of how hard it is to give up control of recognizing that actually it's not just that you're letting other people do it, oh, well, I'll suffer that they won't do it as well, but that there are, in fact, other people who can do things better than you can, even though that's hard to admit as a business owner. Could you talk to that for a little bit? Sure. Um, th- th- that is hard to admit, and it's it's hard um, for myself and for many people to uh, let go of the control. And in some ways, that uh, that control and the knowledge and expertise that you have is what made the company successful from the beginning. Uh, But it's actually what will hold you back from being further successful uh, after you reach a certain uh, point in in your growth. Mm. And uh, so your job becomes one of not what you can do yourself, but identifying people that are as good as, if not better than yourself, uh, selling the vision to them, bringing them on board, and training and teaching them. And um, then the business can uh, move forward much better, more quickly, with less reliance on yourself. Um, so that is a huge uh, shift that has to take place in the entrepreneur's mind. Um, 
And like I said before, after I uh, just about killed myself going through that process with my first business, I said, there's got to be a better way. Uh, and in, in fact, that was what attracted me as an attendee to uh, to David's uh, Maui events uh, in the first place was that very concept was to uh, build your businesses, build them well, but build them so that you can have a life at the same time and so those businesses can move on uh, without you. Um, I just can't stress how how important uh, that, that paradigm shift was for me and, and I think for everyone. Yeah, it's almost as sometimes we get wrapped into what we do and how we've done it for so long that it, it, it we, we're almost looking from inside and can't see it yet. The moment someone from the outside points it out, we, we, we just go, of course, I should have seen that. It's so obvious. In a moment, we're going to talk about where, where things are for you now, but I want to come back to this idea of how you guys scaled in terms of adding on other businesses, because this is a really interesting thing that you and Patrice did um, that's, that's different from some of the other uh, Maui advisors I've interviewed or friends of mine who've sold or built companies I've interviewed. One thing that you guys have done is you've created a collection of companies that really fit around a theme. Um, and you've created almost these small ancillary businesses that became, in their own right, fairly substantial businesses. So talk a little bit about how you first made the decision to go from one gulp to the second company, you know, the core business to adding on your first ancillary business, how you, how you made the decision in terms of how, how fast to add a new business, um, and a little bit about how you created the strategy around that. And again, this is be for the business owner, Rob, that is on here listening, who they've got a real successful core business, and they're, they're attracted to perhaps start a complementary business too, their core business, whether it be a service business or a product business, doesn't really matter. Can you speak to how you guys did it? Tell a little bit about that because you were, I mean, you did that in a real deliberate fashion and it's worked exceptionally well for you. Yeah, and, and truthfully, there were multiple uh, reasons for doing that. First of all, there were business reasons for doing it. And we tried to be opportunistic. Um, we uh, had a lot of business and we would subcontract out parts of that business to vendors who specialized in those areas. Uh, as an example related to meetings, we had an audio-visual uh, provider uh, that we were paying um, hundreds of thousands if not over a million uh, dollars to each year. And we said, you know, we really do have that expertise in-house. Why don't we simply create another company and um, make those monies go toward an in-house company and uh, those are being billed to external firms whereby uh, the revenue on it could even be marked up because we're charging less than the market would bear. And so it was kind of an opportunistic uh, kind of thing. And other things that we were paying other companies for uh, ended up showing up and we decided to create our own companies uh, to take care of that. Um, at the same time all that was happening, uh, there were tax reasons uh, to create these various companies, um, tax efficiencies, if you will, by having uh, a mix of C-Corps, um, S-Corps, uh, and in our case, even a, a nonprofit organization. 
and having those businesses uh, do business with each other and um, and uh, move money around appropriately, of course, and uh, all above board and, and legal and in compliance with the IRS, uh, but yet save um, hundreds of thousands of dollars in income taxes. So, so we 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 had a, a two pronged. Uh, approach to the whole thing when it made sense from a business perspective and we combined that with uh, what made sense from a tax perspective. Yeah. Now, one of the things I watch when I see people do what you've done and they make mistakes, there are probably two big ones here. One is they try to start too many too fast. Um, and let's start there for a moment. How do you pace yourself? Because any new business, even though you, you, you're a captive audience to sell your own you know, your own core business is going to become its first core customer. How do you make sure you're not biting up too much too fast? Um, at least how did you do that? Because other business yeah. owners might struggle with it. I've seen that. Yeah, we, you know, we probably started uh, in uh, back in our heyday uh, maybe one business every one or two years. Uh, it really wasn't possible to do much more than that uh, with the staff of people that we had and uh, trying to grow the existing businesses and, and so on. Um, probably at, at the height of all that going on, we had approximately 100 employees and, uh, and trying to uh, direct all those folks and bring in new management and so on and so forth. Um, you just uh, you can't bite off more than you can chew. So the opportunity had to be there uh, at the right time in the right place. And... Um, and again, not do more, in our case, more than one about every year or two uh, to add. Yeah. Now, the second thing that you and Patrice and your partner did that I thought was so smart about this, which is another mistake, which I watch people, they'll build a second business because they say, like you did, hey, you know, in this case, audiovisual, we're spending, you know, a million dollars a year. Why wouldn't we spend that with ourselves? Why wouldn't we give ourselves that business? And one mistake I watch them make is they, they kind of get a little bit fat and lazy. What I mean by that is this side business really doesn't have the ability to stand on its own two legs because they never approach it like a business where it's offering its services to the general marketplace. They just sell to the captive audience of the core business. And, and while that's not a bad thing, it ultimately is, makes the business weaker because good talent doesn't like to live in a business like that. Um, so talk a little bit about your decision, because you guys do that smart. I mean, you, you do offer services to the general market in a way that keeps these other businesses vibrant. Uh, we, we do indeed. Uh, we, we do treat them as their own business, and uh, they need to earn their own way from a, a, a profit perspective. Uh, so they, they do have their, their own little space, uh, that they're expected to grow and prosper in. So, uh, no, it's not simply just living off the internal uh, company's uh, revenue. Uh, we we want them all, um, for for various reasons, to go out there and uh, and win business like anybody else in their industry would do. Yeah, yeah. So now let's shift gears here again, and now it's time to kind of look at what does what does level three look like for you guys? And so this is a chance to get a, a kind of a picture of what, what life looks like for, for you and, and for Patrice now and for your family now that you've, you're, you've made the decision that you're 
you're going to continue to own the business in a more passive way. And so first of all, talk a little bit about your role in the companies now, and then talk about what do you do with the other parts at the time that used to go into the business years ago, but now have other outlets. Again, not because right. you have the right way, but because you're sharing a picture to give the rest of us some thoughts about what this might look like for us as we race through the finish line. Right. Well, uh, we we are at this point, uh, I would consider them to be level three businesses. Uh, yeah. Frankly, they could go on without us. Uh, I do continue to uh, to give input as far as what we should be doing, um, especially from a, a sales and marketing perspective, because that's always been my slant on everything. Uh, and I also oversee all the, the finances and financial statements. Now, I'm not doing any of the um, daily work in those areas, but those are areas that I just uh, oversee and, and keep an eye on. Um, but that does not require uh, a lot of my time. Uh, my wife, Patrice, oversees the clinical areas. Uh, she's a clinician herself, a doctor of pharmacy. And so she oversees those areas, but again, she's not involved in the daily operations. And the, the same is true for our other uh, friend and, uh, and colleague who is also a principal. So um, we all travel pretty extensively, and it's nice that we have a business that uh, actually supports that and uh, where we can go the places in the world where we want to go and uh, actually have that be part of the business and, and do uh, some business while we're there, but get plenty of enjoyment at the same time. So we do uh, a fair amount of that. Uh, we do uh, a lot of our uh, seminars in Hawaii. So uh, my wife and I, David and I, were just uh, getting updated on that. Spent a, a fair amount of time on Maui. Uh, near one of the hotels that we do a lot of meetings at. And the whole thing is uh, supported uh, by the business, and we're there. Um, you know, we're not skipping out on our own meetings. We do go to those and and uh, meet attendees and do the things that need to be done. But, um, again, it just doesn't require a ton of our time. And uh, to be honest, we, we could be uh, removed from the business and it would continue to grow and prosper and uh, and do well. And because of that, there's no real pressure now to, uh, to sell the businesses. Unlike uh, my first experience where I was looking for the escape plan, because <laughs> it's, not a, it's, it's not a burden now to uh, continue working with those businesses. Frankly, we have no plans to sell. Uh, yeah. No plans to really retire. We just want to continue working with the business where, you know, it only takes, uh, you know, maybe a hour or two a day on average and uh, and uh, then do the other things that we like to do. My wife and I do have seven children, and uh, uh, child number four is getting uh, married this year, so we have four of the seven are now married. We have two grandbabies so far and many, many more coming. And uh, we hope to have many, many uh, times with our, our grandchildren, both at home in Colorado and at our second home in uh, Hawaii. And uh, that's the reason why we bought that and have great times that we can connect with our kids and, and grandchildren and uh, do all, all those sorts of things. Um, 
so that's kind of what we're all about. And I also do now spend a fair amount of my time uh, working on the investments and uh, investing the, the funds that have come through the businesses uh, through the years, uh, through the sales of businesses in some cases, but mostly through the cash flow that uh, continues to flow out of the business um, and just being sure that we uh, invest that wisely uh, from here on out and that that will also continue to support us for the rest of our lives. So, uh, yeah. So we love our lives. To, to answer your question, David, we we love where we're at. We enjoy the things that we're doing, and uh, uh, don't know that we would change a single thing at this stage of life. Yeah, which is a, a wonderful. It's a lovely place to be. Talk for a moment here about one thing I've always enjoyed about the two of you, and, and you've kind of broken it up in your own way. But certainly, I've always admired about you, Rob. Is you, for you, a big part of your life at this moment. And I know it was a part before, but. But the business realities and family realities didn't allow for it. But now it, the business is situated that it does in terms of some of the giving work that you do. I know that, for, for example, you're really involved in HISG. And why don't you talk real briefly about some of the, 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 the parts of, of you that that feeds. What I mean by that is the choices your current businesses give you, not just to put money places, but to put some of your heart, soul, and time in places. Talk about that, please. Well, absolutely, the the freedom that I'm uh, talking about has enabled us to be involved in uh, humanitarian and uh, charitable uh, types of work uh, throughout the world. I I co-founded an organization that David referred to there that's uh, still doing uh, that kind of work. Uh, I'm I'm not as closely tied to that as I used to be, uh, but I'm actually looking for new opportunities uh, to do the same things. Uh, I'm a big believer in uh, in giving back, uh, not only to uh, to business owners and, and people that I relate to on that fashion, but uh, also to the people that cannot help themselves and uh, people that are needy and hungry and, and need clothing and orphans are particularly close to my heart and uh, uh, we will continue to look for the right opportunities to be involved in those sorts of activities as well. I appreciate that. So now we're going to ask you to kind of look a little bit about what are the painful mistakes in your past. <laughs> and I'll start us off by sharing, because we've had this conversation a couple of times before getting out to the Wealth Summit event and and, and so forth, and, and, and I'll share with my story, then it'll kind of echo in if you would kind of jump in here and kind of share your experiences. So in 2005, um, sold at the very end, closed, literally the price was going to go up if the, the buyer didn't close by the end of that year tax-wise, and so they, they did. We closed on the 31st of, of December, uh, funds wired in there with that part of, of December of 2005, and I ended up with a big wire transfer. And there I was in January. The first was a moment of elation. Then somewhere in February, I started saying, hey, I'm not getting any kind of cash checks anymore. I mean, the businesses used to churn out, you know, hundred or $200,000 a month of profit, and I, I don't have any of these anymore. My expenses are still pretty high. I've got this big lump sum of money. I need to do something. And somewhere around about March or April, I felt this pressure to get that money quickly invested and so there I was in 2006, 
and I, I, I did the investing how I had always done it prior, which was looking for growth. And what I never had done is I never made the shift to recognize that I, I no longer needed the same kind of growth. What I needed was I, I built the net worth. I needed to convert that net worth into cash flow and the lessons along the way around that part. And so I made some, some, some investment moves that were just silly looking in retrospect, but the time seemed all reasonable because I was basing my investment off of how I used to do it, off of going after the growth. And I took on so much more risk that I didn't need to take. And it cost, you know, in my case, a couple million bucks. Um, painful, you know, certainly survivable and, and, and in perspective on all those things, it's a life lesson learned. But what no one had ever mentioned to me was this idea that after I had my big exit, it would have been a good idea for me to stop for a little bit and pause and wait. And then once my reality internally caught up to my reality externally, started making some more deliberate decisions at that point. Share your experience around that, because I know we've had some real interesting conversations on this subject in private. Yes, uh, mine are, are very similar uh, to your own, David. Uh, seriously, there ought to be a, a test that you have to take before you can sell your business. Um, and I've seen that happen so often with so many business owners that were uh, very, very focused uh, on getting their businesses built up and then sold, spending no time thinking about once that big uh, lump sum of cash comes through, how you're going to uh, transfer that into uh, cash flow. And the, the, the skills, the, the, there are some skills that transfer from building a business to a, a good investment and in what good businesses are, but there's a lot of them that just have to be learned. And uh, I uh, have a special place in my heart for, for people that are making that transition because I wish I had known uh, before I had gone through that transition because I made many of the same mistakes, investing too much money in single places and not understanding the whole concept of asset allocation and uh, risk mitigation, and uh, I, uh, I myself lost uh, probably into the millions by uh, making some of those same mistakes. One of my favorite uh, sayings, uh, that's uh, not my own, uh, everything's borrowed, I guess, but somebody said uh, it takes a good man to make money. It takes a better one to keep it. And uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that statement, and it's like uh, when you sell a business, that's just uh, phase one of, of your learning process and then you have to move on to uh to the next thing and there's there's a lot to learn from there so um uh selling the business is not the end all uh be all and uh it takes a lot to figure out how to generate something that produces the kind of cash flow that your business was uh was generating so it's it's something you need to think long and, and hard about it, and that's where I spend most of my time these days. I just wish I'd known more uh, before I stepped into that transition. Yeah, and the, and when you sold that first company, what was that, was that in? How many years ago was it? What year did you sell the first one? That was 1999. So I was uh, 39 years old. I had told myself uh, I was going to have my first million. 
before I was 40 years old and uh, be able to retire. Uh, and sure enough, I made it just before 40. Uh, however, uh, having not invested the, the funds well, uh, that, uh, that dream evaporated fairly quickly uh, because uh, uh, that, that, that money and the, the, the cash flow, the monthly cash flow went away and uh, the investments uh, did not work out well. And so I was pretty quickly back in the same boat again and actually uh, because of that needed to form some businesses again myself. I formed businesses in the same space that my original business that I sold was in. Uh, and fortunately, because of lessons learned, I was able to recreate um, those businesses and do it in a much shorter time frame uh, the second time around. However, uh, again, had I known what to do with uh, the money that the first go around, I wouldn't have uh, had to rebuild everything. Yeah, and that's an important lesson here. And I think if I were to share a takeaway, I want everyone who's listening to this conversation to leave with would be as business owners, we, we do, we're goal-setting people. We are. But oftentimes we don't think past the goal, and we think that goal is the finish line. And, you know, I'm going to build a successful company at, you know, $20 million a year of revenue or $200 million of revenue or $2 million of revenue, whatever the number is. And so I think what you're hearing from Rob, and, and I would echo it, which is this idea of what, what are the things that you want in your life after you sell? You know, do you want to... Is there some component of the, the philanthropic or charitable work you want? Do you want to you know, make sure you're enjoying your family and want a home that, that you can encourage kids and grandkids to coalesce around? Do you want to still have active participation in the business but on a much lower scale so that you feel you can um, stay mentally into it and enjoy it and whatever that is? And then your comment here about also look at start learning those skill sets of how am I going to manage and invest my net worth? after that big liquidity event, and the time to learn it really isn't after you've got the wire and the balance in there because you start feeling a pressure and the mistakes are, are a lot larger, but to learn it before along the way and gaining those schools of experience along the way. Um, so, Rob, let's ask this question then. So when you, when you look at um, you know, the things that you've, you, you've done in the business side, if you were to put your finger on one or two things on the scaling of the business that really helped most for you, the things that were you – know, you shared one, so I'm, I'm going to take that one and kind of put it out here, which is the idea, the paradigm shift of, hey, build this so it doesn't need me, which to anyone in the Maui community now seems obvious, but for most business owners, you know, 85-plus percent of business owners, according to the U.S. Census Bureau – are level two owner-reliant businesses or lower. They're not, they're not level three businesses. And those numbers are skewed because of how they measure the statistics. Um, what, other, what one or two other lessons would you want to say that these were, these were really important epiphanies for you, moments for you, insights for you, or, or ideas that really made a difference for you as you went from this transition from owning the business that you were in to transitioning it into a much more passive role? Well, um, pr 
probably um, a, a couple things. Uh, one is, is, is fairly obvious, but uh, it is so about the people that you work with. And, um, you know, the, the, the business owner doesn't have to put up with people that are not enjoyable to work with and not uh, a benefit to the business. So my advice over the years has, has, has now come to the first time you ever think about firing somebody, you probably should have done it already. Hmm. And um, um, so, and, and frankly, that's, that's for their good as, as well as your own. That won't feel good to them, but... Um, I think uh, ultimately it, it is for their best. They they need to find a place where they uh, fit in uh, better. And uh, it also makes all the other employees uh, unhappy, and that's not a situation that you want. Uh, so you, you need to be able to um, get the best talent that you can get and let go uh, the talent that you really need to... Uh, to let go of. I guess, you know, there's a lot of things that I could think of, but um, but my other point would be um, focus on sales and marketing. Uh, I mean, hopefully you've got a great product or service. You've got a great uh, process uh, to manage it all. You've added the, the people component. But uh, more than anything, when it comes down to growth, it, it's so much about how you do your your sales and marketing. And uh, although I'm a finance guy and a CPA by background and have no sales and marketing, I know enough about the numbers to know that um, sales drives the numbers and, and the marketing. So, um, so I emphasize that and spend a considerable amount of time and always have uh, thinking about that particular area and uh, instituting programs that uh, that would drive the growth of the businesses. So, uh, just in my own uh, biased opinion, that is uh, such an important area, and uh, it just has to be focused on. Yeah, and now I'm going to jump over to some of the the, the, the last you know one, two, or three takeaways on the on the wealth side. So looking at your, your business in the part of the larger context at level three says, hey, being being smart about the investing of your net worth and learning those skill sets. So one thing that I, I'm going to draw a lesson for you from your experiences I see is you had this experience the first time through where you sold the company in 1999. You had your large payday from that and, and deservedly so. But you didn't have the skill set of how to invest, and, and what happened is you no longer have the income. It's interesting. The second time through now, as you built your other companies, because you learned that lesson, you know, you, in the last several years especially, I mean, I know for as long as I've met you, certainly in the, in the last five years intensively, watching how you put some real energy, attention, time, um, curiosity, to learning how to manage your net worth and to do your investing. So you've created cash flow and income from your investments, which lessen your reliance on the business to make sure you can more than comfortably support your lifestyle um, from your net worth without eating into your net worth in terms of uh, you know uh, going into principal with that part. And 
I'm going to guess, and, and then this, so my first question is: Is this true? Is it am, is my intuition accurate that by having more than enough from your investment income to comfortably cover lifestyle cost, it reduces one element of pressure in terms of building a, a business, and it allows you to enjoy owning your business as, as opposed to the person who feels like I've got so much of my net worth tied up in my only asset, I have to sell it. Whereas you and Patrice have the option now to hang on to it because you have some coverage in other ways. And, and this is only a, I mean, it's only a wonderful thing for you guys because now you have the cash flow from the business, which very few investments will ever generate the cash flow that a well-run business has. So is, am I accurate with what I'm seeing? We've never discussed this, but I've just heard it in this conversation. I wanted to, to put this out to you and, and get your comment on it. Oh, it's absolutely true. And uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in multiple streams of income and not being dependent upon single sources of income, and that's whether you're a business or whether you're an individual. Uh, because when you build things that way, it does put less pressure on any individual component of that uh, to perform. And, uh, you know, if uh, if your back is up against the wall and your business has to perform and, and you've got that level of stress, all of your employees are going to uh, sense that level of stress, whether you tell them that or not. And uh, it just makes for an atmosphere that's uh, a lot higher stress and, and maybe not as much fun as it could and should be. So it definitely does, and, and we are in that position where our investments uh, could take care of us uh, for the rest of our lives, and, and, and part of my time on investing is to get good enough at it that I know if uh, if the business went bankrupt tomorrow, which isn't going to happen, but uh, but that we could uh, work with the the assets that we already have, and they would uh, support us and meet our needs and and uh, all that sort of thing. So, yes, you're you're absolutely uh, accurate on that, David. And uh, uh, again, I would just add one more point to all of this. Um, and and again, this is my personal bias, but I think for a person that says when they uh, get a big cash lump some payment, to turn that money over to somebody else and say, here, you manage this, uh, is in most cases the absolute uh, worst thing that you can do because there's a lot of people out there that make their living off of that sort of situation and uh, doing what's in their best interest and not necessarily what's in your best interest. Um, so, of course, I'm talking about the financial industry not everybody in the financial industry, but by and large, um, you know, you, you, it's not just that you can make the mistakes yourself. You can give it to somebody else who cares less about your money than you do, and they can make uh, those kinds of, of mistakes. And uh, so I would caution anybody against uh, just giving your money to, uh, to somebody else to have them manage it because uh, that's not the answer either. Do we still have you there, David? Oh, I'm sorry. I actually hit, hit the, a button here that you couldn't hear me. So I totally echo what you said there. When I was sharing uh, 
was that on my experience that kind of echoes that. And there's a, I mean, these are some of the most, in the financial services industry, some of the most articulate, well-spoken, impressive people you'll ever meet. And yet in the industry, there is a sprinkling of these incredibly competent, capable people, but there's also a larger dosage of people that, that really have a different level of care, perhaps, than, than you would have. And so being able to intelligently use advisors in, in that part of your life, but still being responsible. I've noticed that business owners will accept a degree of fuzziness, cloudiness, or, or not understanding in their investment life that they would never accept in their businesses. And I totally echo that. Rob, last thing I want to do here is to offer to anyone else on the line here, if they've got a question that they want to bring up here, now's a great time for that for you. If not, I've done my best to ask what I think are the most important, juiciest, interesting questions. But I want to give, is there anyone else here right now that wants to ask? We've got a number of you on the line. Thank you all for who have been quiet on your hitting mute on your end. Go on once, twice. All right. So, Rob, I want to just end this call then by just saying thank you. First of all, congratulations on the soon-to-be marriage of your your fourth, <laughs> and the two grandkids, and you said a number on the way, which means you've got some, 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 some more joy in your life heading for that. That's great. And I Absolutely. just want to acknowledge you and Patrice for thank you for the, the places that you've been able to and chosen to give back into the community here in Maui. You don't have to do this. You, like the other advisors, have plenty of choices and plenty of people who are asking for time and, and insight and the fact that you've consistently shared with us over time, it, it's been a real treat for the rest of us, and I want to say thank you for that. Glad to help. Thank you very much, David. All right, Rob. Enjoy Hawaii when you get out there on your spring break, and uh, hopefully you can h- handle uh, London's first-grade homework here this week. <laughs> it's that, that's a challenge for me at this stage already. <laughs> All right. And on, for everyone else here, thank you very much. And I hope this was a breath of fresh air. And so, uh, this, again, this is David. And on behalf of Maui Mastermind, thank you all for listening to this CEO roundtable. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.